I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and this is FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Nuno Sebastio co-founded a company that uses artificial intelligence to spot fraud in online payments with two scientists from his home country, Portugal. They knew they had great technology, but Portugal at that time was not a good place to start a business with global aspirations. So when it came to marketing and finance, he and his co-founders had to look elsewhere. Feedsign now has offices in San Francisco, New York and London. Nuno told me how all this came about. Feedseye is a big data business, but what is it that you do? What we do is we're able to ingest and process large amounts of data and essentially in real time understand who are you as a consumer. Is it the real you or is it someone that has stolen your identity or has stolen your credit card information and is trying to pretend to be you? Me and my two co-founders, we go back about 20 years one of my co-founders is a university professor. I was his first undergrad student for whom he was supervising a master thesis. And we bonded, but then we went our separate ways. I moved to Germany after graduation. I was working at European Space Station as operations center. And there I started essentially from an engineering position all the way to running what was called a simulations group. The unit that simulates and understands how a spacecraft or a satellite is going to behave before it's actually launched. At the same time, my two co-founders, one of them, Pedro, went to the U.S. with a Fulbright scholarship to do his PhD. And the only thing he answered during his PhD work was, how do you contextualize a piece of information that you're seeing right now with historical information that you might have? So let me give you an example. If I see, I don't know, a temperature, and I'm measuring it right now, but if I have no context, this can be good or bad. I mean, if, if I measure it in summertime, it's expected to be higher. So contextualizing what you're seeing right now with historical information, it was an area of research I was severely underdeveloped, especially when you're talking about doing it in real time, doing it right now. So you have on one hand me doing the simulation and modeling. You have on the other hand, Peter, working on this understanding real time in context of historical information. And then when we got together, I was actually studying here in London. I was doing my MBA at LBS, and I flew Pedro and Paulo here, and I told them, look, guys, you're some of the smartest guys I know out there. I really think we should be doing something together. The first time we actually coined the name of the company Feedsai was actually here, and that goes back to 2009. And what does that name mean? Like everything, there's no master plan. So when we were looking for a name of the company, we look at, okay, fine. We know we're going to process data, okay? So that's feeds come from, data feeds. And we felt that there was really a market for this combination of the real time with the historical information. So basically that means that that data processing had to be really fast. And we were trying to come up with names. So how do we manage feeds with fast, feeds with fast? And 
we are very avid fans of Japanese anime. And if you know, there's this thing called Banzai. And the image we had in our mind is little Japanese characters running around really fast. So we just joined the two words together, the feed and the zai, and therefore you have feed zai. Does it take a lot of explanation to customers? A little bit more than this, let me tell you that, because they go like, oh, but haven't you gone through a process? Like, no, we're a startup. The name is the least relevant thing in all of it. I mean, there are brands out there, some of the most famous brands in the world, whose names actually include drugs in it, right? I'm talking about Coca-Cola. So it comes after the fact that you make the brand and then you, you have a name and then you work with it. And .com was available, which is not an easy thing these days. And you're based in Portugal, but your first clients in the US, you've got Capital One. Why would a big company like Capital One take a punt on you? So we knew we had the engineering know-how in Portugal. And from a cost perspective at the time, it was the best place for us to start from an engineering perspective. What we very soon realized was that it's probably some of the worst places in the world to actually do business with. Market's very small. So we did try to engage with some European financial institutions. And they've come a long way since. But at that point, at least in our case, what we realized was that in the U.S., these organizations, they understand better the technology for itself without us giving references because we had no references. We wanted them to be the first customer. In Europe, what we were getting is a lot of questions about who do you do business with already? Like, well, I was expecting you to be the first. So in the US, they do a very thorough technical due diligence process. But what we found out is that they're able to understand the technology for itself better. Their engineering teams really know not how these products are consumed, but how they're built, and therefore they can understand if it does what it says it does. It's changing now in Europe. So I've seen in the last year or so that a lot of the European financial institutions are actually trying to catch up to that, either through their innovation centers or through hiring people from these technological companies. But it's still not at the same level of what we see in the US. When you're building a small business or a startup, there are pivotal moments at which you make or break the company. So once we were at a fairly advanced stage with them of due diligence, they said, okay, fine. We want to make a bet on you, but we want to meet you guys. And we're going to take some of our execs to your offices in California, in the Bay Area. And we go like, oh, the office we had, they wouldn't fit because the number we had was about 12 people and we could not fit them in the room because what we had was a tiny little office. And luckily, in the building we were, there was a, a larger meeting room. So we booked that meeting room. And we told them, look, in the U.S., I mean, it's only two of us. I actually flew in half of my engineering from Portugal to be there. And we we're very open with them. We said, look, this is who we are. I mean, we're a tiny company. And we might go under tomorrow. We might go bankrupt in six months. That's who we are, right? So what they've said to us, okay, fine. We'll take all of that in consideration. We spent a full day. Think about one day that you start an exam at 8 o'clock in the morning and you go until 7 o'clock at night and you're grilled. I mean, we were exhausted. What I told the team was, look, guys, we might win or lose, but we gave it our absolute best. There was nothing more we could do. So if they choose to go with us, amazing. It's going to be life-changing for all of us. If they don't, we have nothing more to give. So from our perspective, it went really well, but you never know. And then they told us, okay, we'll go back, we'll decide, and we'll call you. And in the meantime, then I'd flown back to Portugal. And I remember this so vividly. I was in the office, and I get this phone call from them 
And I literally started, you know, my heart started racing and all of that. And I did not answer the phone. I was so nervous that I said, I cannot pick the phone. I mean, if I pick up the phone now, my voice is going to be trembling. I'm not going to be able to not show that how nervous I am. So I did not pick up the phone. And I turned to my co-founder, Paul and Pedro, and I said, this is it. Either we're going to make it out of the company or we're not. And I called him back. And, you know, those first seconds, you're trying to understand where is it going to go, right? And then he finally says, okay, we're going to go with you guys. Now let's put this in the contract. And I was like, oh, my God. So we, we made it. We made it through that step. And fortunately, I mean, then it all worked. I mean, they did the deal with us. They liked it so much that they actually became an investor in the company. And you understand that because they wanted to also manage their risk of working with such a small little company. This was a first for essentially all of us. No one had ever invested in a startup in Portugal from abroad. U.S. investors didn't know how to do it, so we had to work with them, you know, legal, all of those aspects. But they believed in the technology enough to do that. And then they've introduced us to a number of potential clients in the U.S. You're the chief executive. You're based in the Bay Area in California, but your head office is still in Portugal. How do you manage something like that? Don't you find yourself all the time on a plane? I do. My two co-founders, one is our CTO, so he's basically the person that builds the product and, and ensures quality in the product. And the other one is our chief science officer, which is basically looking at research and what we're going to be putting into the product in two years, three years time frame and just looking ahead. So those two functions, perfect to be in Portugal. As a CEO that I have to look more at the sales marketing, what I found out is that Portugal is not a good place. There's no history of people that are selling technology products the same way there's no issue of people that market those type of products. So we had to go and find the places where we would hire those. And since I was in the U.S. selling to U.S. clients, we found out, okay, let's do that out of the U.S. But as a company in the broader reach, for instance, you, we run European sales out of here, out of London, because that's where I found out that the best people for this type of product can be found. But for instance, global support, our client support, we run out of New York because it gives us the biggest reach in terms of time zones. We can cover Europe and we can cover North America. Companies and startups, they have today, I mean, with teleconferencing equipments and traveling, it doesn't really matter where you physically are. As long as you can work in a virtual environment, it works just fine. Nuno's success in wooing his first investors proved transformative. But how do untested startups set about finding their first customers? I put the question to Julian Birkenshaw of the Deloitte Institute of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at London Business School. Well, it's a big challenge. The starting point is often that you have a decent relationship with someone in one of these customers. And it might be a friend, it may be a previous business acquaintance, and it's someone, frankly, who's going to do you a little bit of a favour. And you don't get paid, you know, you basically find a way of turning them into a reference customer by doing something that works for them and you're basically just trying it out, you're proving the concept and if you can get somebody to do that and have them to say yes, you know, they've done a good job and we recognise that, you put that on the website, that is the beginning of the solution, right? Often it's a good idea to deliberately start small. I knew a startup that was trying to sell to government, which of course is enormously difficult. She's from Pakistan. She ended up selling not to the government of Pakistan or the government of India, but to the government of Mauritius, a much smaller entity, obviously, the sort of place where you can imagine a little bit of give and take in terms of let's figure out how this works here. And once, of course, you get that first customer, as you say, then you can just gradually get the cycle 
going. So that's the way forward. And that is, as far as I can see, the best way of, of overcoming the problem. If you're a startup selling to consumers, yeah. it's not so much about that big customer, it's getting that brand out there. In the world of business to consumer selling, obviously you don't have the same problem with the reference customer because no one really quite knows who else has bought the product. And it's, of course, typically a much lower cost product in the first place. So a lot of people, they're tempted just to say, I'm going to build a website and it's going to be really cool and the world will beat a path to my door. And of course, they're a little bit surprised when they get, you know, seven hits in the first week rather than 700 hits. So there's two ways forward. One is to come up with this just this really innovative, unique proposition that somehow is exciting enough that you can get a little bit of word of mouth, a bit of viral marketing around it. Again, there's networking involved. You get your friends to talk about it to their friends. And occasionally if something sounds you know, really cool, then it does gradually build that way. The alternative, I guess, is to gradually build the business out purely by proving that what you're doing is just that much better. You don't have to have the sexiest brand in the world, but what you have to do is to be able to prove that you've just got a better price, or a better offering, and then gradually word of mouth fills that way. So, you know, there's the sort of the, the viral brand version and there's then there's the sort of proving that you've got a better product. But of course, in both cases, you need to try to get the bandwagon rolling without spending a vast amount of money. And of course, the best way of doing that, again, is through your network. I asked Nuno if he ever found out why his first customers decided to make a bet on his company. We did. So we put our absolute best in that. So we really wanted to prove to the guys that made a bet on us that not only we were going to deliver, but this was going to make them look good internally. So I believe we did a phenomenal job. And then I asked him a couple of months later, like over a meal, tell me, why did you actually choose to go with us? Because it was so risky. And they basically told me, like, we weren't sure if the technology was ready or not. We weren't sure if the product could withstand our fault tolerance, our high availability type of requirements that the system cannot go down, it has to work 24-7 and so on. But what we found out is that technically you guys were smart. So even if the product wasn't there, we could work with you to make the product go there. And also we liked you guys and we knew that if we compare you against a large vendor, for you, this is your life. It's either you make it or you're not going to make it as a company. For a large vendor, we're just another client. So the kind of passion we were going to put into it, it was completely different. And we found out that, let's call it the new way of doing business, if you want to put it that way. It's a lot more about having people on the other side that they also have a job. They also have to show that they've done the right bet and, and to show that they were able to be differentiating themselves, but also managing risk and, and, and making sure that they wouldn't you know, collapse the bank, let's put it like that. And that's to do with how much do they trust that you are going to be able to deliver and that when things go bad, and they will go bad, that you're there for them. I think those two factors that we knew what we were doing from a technological standpoint and that we were going to be there for them, those are the reasons they told us. Next time, we'll be meeting a man who found it much harder to raise the capital needed to fund his robotic technology business but was helped out of a financial hole by a crime writer. Listen next week to hear his story. In the meantime, you can catch up on previous episodes by going to our special page, ft.com forward slash startup. Goodbye. Hold up. 
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.